Welcome, everyone. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the Max Marzo podcast. Thanks for tuning in, friends. I appreciate you listening in. So, as always, let's kick it off with my cheesy sales pitch the Always an Athlete team. Always an Athlete team, seven day free trial. It's there for you. You want to join? Come join. We're going to get jacked, stacked, run fast, be explosive. If that's your type of training, come join us. If not, you don't need to join us. If you don't know if it's good for you and be a good fit for you, heck, Try it out for seven days. That's why we have a seven-day free trial. You don't like it after that, yeah, you can leave. If you like it, stick around. You might like it. We've had people on the team for, oh, I think up to two years now. I think a people have been on the team for two years. That's pretty dope. You could be that person. It might be a great fit for you. Lots of people really like it. You could be one of those. All right. Well, check it out. Seven-day free trial. Train heroic. Always an athlete team. That's my sales pitch. All right. Cool. Today, we're having some fun topics today. What does it mean to have changes in correlations? That does not sound like a fun topic. <laughs> I got to do a better job of naming these. Changes in correlation. What a fun topic, nerd. Um, changes in correlations and what it means to um, strength qualities. Oh, gosh, it sounds so boring as I say it out loud. It's a cool topic. Just hang in there. I promise. I'll make it sound awesome. And we'll also talk about the perfect kind of primer before your um, basketball game, baseball game, whatever sporting event. I can't think today, whatever. So those are the two topics we're going to talk about. We might have a wild one at the end there too, but I'll save that as a surprise if we get there. So first and foremost, correlations. What are correlations? They are, I know this is so boring. It's the relationship between two variables. A really easy way to explain it, a correlation that you might be aware of or used to seeing or something that makes a lot of sense is how tall you are and how high you can reach. Why are they correlated? Your standing reach and how tall you are? Well, because how tall you are typically sets how high your shoulders are going to be. And the taller you are, the longer your wingspan typically is. However, height does not always explain every bit of reach because some people have longer arms. I know people who are six, eight with seven, two wingspans. And I am six, three with a six, three wingspan or six, two with a six, two wingspan. So the point is there might be a six, eight guy with a six, eight wingspan and a six, eight guy with a seven, two wingspan. So between those two, the height are equal, but the reach is not the same. So correlation is the closeness and relationship between two variables. So what we like to look at in strength and conditioning and things like that is, oh, let's look at the correlation maybe between the performance of an exercise that represents specific muscle groups and that of a performance metric. So an example might be someone might say, hmm, let's look at the correlation between max squat strength and how high you can jump. Makes sense. Jumping muscles are utilized in squatting. The squat pattern trains a, a similar pattern to that of jumping. And so we're going to look at the max strength, but specifically the relative strength. So how strong you are relative to your body. Now, if, if squatting was the perfect reflection of a movement that trained all those muscles perfectly in a fashion that directly translated to jumping, there'd be a one-to-one -one relationship in your ability to jump higher and an improvement in your squatting form, the closeness of that relationship your squatting form, improvement in your squatting numbers. That would be the closeness of the relationship. So if I put on 10 pounds on my back squat, I would see an X increase in my jump height 
and forever and ever and ever, as long as I keep increasing my relative strength by X, my jump height will improve by X. So that's not always the case though. And we'll talk about that here and why that's pretty cool because this correlation changes. And I'm just talking the top of my head, pretty sure research would back me up on this. It has been shown quite a bit that in younger adolescent athletes or weaker athletes, the strength, relative strength is highly correlated to how high you can jump. So in other words, when you are of a certain level of strength, the determining factor is how high you can jump. Now, a relationship of this might be like, hmm, let's say it's 0.8, okay? Um, the R squared, so that's called the R value. The R squared is the percent of explained variance. And all that is saying basically is, if I can just look at this exercise, say the squat, I can explain with a pretty good likelihood that their jump height is going to be X, but there is going to be some variance involved. So it's not going to be perfect. Not all six, eight guys are going to have the same wingspan. So height is going to explain a lot about our standing reach, but there is some variance between our height and our standing reach because certain people might have other factors that play a role. So if the correlation was perfect, there would be no other factors at play. The less perfect the correlation is, the less the squat explains about the vertical jump, and the more it tells us there are undiscovered variables at play. So here's what's really cool about this. Um, a traditional uh, traditional test, I think you can call it, is like for sprinting times is like a broad jump. I don't remember the date this was collected, but you can check it out yourself. Looked it up on NFL.com stats thingy. Did my own little correlation on it. And you look up broad jump and its relationship to uh, the 40-yard dash because, well, it's a horizontal vector in which we're producing force. So you'd imagine that the horizontal vector, that is the broad jump, would be related to our sprinting ability. Now, that relationship was only significant in quarterbacks when compared between quarterbacks and running backs. And running backs, the broad jump had no correlation to how fast they ran. And the quarterbacks, it did. Why? Well, because running backs are probably all a lot faster on average than the quarterbacks are. So it's interesting that the relationship between a certain metric can change based on the cohort we're looking within. And what does this tell us about training and strength training, all this other stuff? That there are hidden variables at play that we really need to try and understand when it comes to performance outcomes. Because if I were to just say the broad jump is the best indicator of sprint time, well, that might not be the case. The broad jump might be a good indicator for sprint time of people who aren't as fast as faster athletes like a running back might be. And so that correlation changes between different groups and populations. And that's really important nature of a correlation. A correlation is only as sturdy, I could say, or stable as the metrics being compared are. What's really important is that the broad jump and the 40-yard dash are what are being compared because we're under the assumption that the broad jump is related to the 40-yard dash in terms of the mechanical output, the force application, and because of that, it's going to have some connection with our sprint time. But the broad jump itself might not actually be that related to sprint times. 
and that's really important. The back squat might have other factors involved in what makes someone squat a lot of weight. Then what are the factors that are involved in jumping high? So what we're looking at here are two kind of movements and we're hoping to draw similarities, but we need to appreciate innately they're very different. And that will be part of the reason why there's a some level of variance between increasing your ability to squat and increasing your ability to jump high or increasing your broad jump and your ability to sprint because neuromechanically, how the movements are organized are very differently. The musculature are very different. And we just simply use these metrics, these correlations to help further understand and take the next steps to identify which aspects of the back squat are significant. And I think that's the frustrating part I have with a lot of our attempts at strength and conditioning research is we simply stop at a correlation. Instead, we should try and understand which, so the correlation tells us some variables within the back squat are related to jump height. What variables are they? Is it the vertical movement pattern? Is it the specific muscles? Is it how we squat, the width, the hinge pattern? There's so many variables at play within the squat that we need to remember that it's not just the squat. A squat is a movement through which muscles are organized to produce force in a vertical fashion. The reason why the squat is correlated at times to the vertical jump is because they are, there are similarities. But just saying there's a correlation between squatting and jump height doesn't tell us which variables or factors are the causal correlative factors. Is it the fact that the depth is a certain depth? Is it the muscles working in a certain way? Is it the how you squat? And so the obsession over the squat pattern is by default a misconception. We don't care about the squat pattern. We care about the squat pattern does. And because the correlation is not perfect, there is potential for us to maybe pick a better option or to better understand which aspects the squat is working really well. And which of those, maybe it's like, hey, look, the squat is a great indicator of how strong your quads are. Your quads are highly correlated to your jump height. So I don't care about the squat pattern. I care about exercises that train the quads to produce vertical force because the squat itself is just a vesicle through which vertical force application is applied. It's merely um, a means to an end. The squat pattern itself is not innately special, but it's what the squat pattern might do. And this, these are the next steps we need to take in our understanding of how movements work in our understanding of research, in my opinion, because we stop so often at correlations. Now, what's also really important is that as some a cohort changes and someone's, for example, you might look at, hey, in younger athletes, maximal strength of the squat is really important. In older athletes, it becomes less important the stronger they are. Why is that? Well, as you get stronger, your own body, uh, force producing abilities, I should say, change relative to the load you're lifting against. So now you're lifting, say you're really strong and you can do a two X body weight squat. The relationship between the load of a vertical jump on your body is very different than the relationship of a load of the vertical jump on your body. When you can hardly squat your own body weight, it becomes a different load relative to your force producing abilities. 
And so this is how we change or how movements change in demands. There's actually a lot of interesting research on this. Um, I think the Russians have done, the Soviets did stuff like this way back in the day where they looked at um, the percent amount of maximal force that was produced at a given percentage of your one rep max. So basically they said, hey, look, we're going to do um, some sort of a one rep max. All right, we're going to see how much force you produce. And let's say you produce 1,000 newtons for simple math. All right, cool, your peak force. Now we're going to have you squat um, 80% of your one rep max. Well, you're actually able to produce 92% of your maximal force. And then maybe if you squat 40% of your one rep max, you're only able to produce 75% of your maximal force. So as the load changes, if my body weight becomes lighter because I'm stronger, my percent max force I can produce against my body weight changes as well. So maybe because my load is changing relative to my strength abilities, my the, the physical demands need to help me jump higher change as well. And so that's a very interesting point we need to discuss is that as we increase our strength, it almost moves our um, interactions with the environment across a different coordinate because we are now stronger when we engage in certain actions. And therefore, because we are stronger, it's a different percentage of our force producing abilities when we engage in, say, jumping from a standstill or a counter movement jump. Your changes in force producing abilities change how you interact with things and that interaction with that load relative to your own force producing abilities because you are now stronger. It's very interesting. And it's something I think we stop short of. I don't think we consider enough. And I think at times we leave on the table, um, especially when it comes to interpreting information. A lot of times people just stop at a correlation. They don't bother to pursue a deeper interest as to why that correlation exists. The correlation of two macro outcomes, a squat and a vertical jump versus a correlation between a more isolated micro outcome like, oh, cross-sectional area of the quads is, has X percent relationship. Or the squat pattern works because the squat pattern changes these, trains these specific muscles and these specific muscles explain X percent of jump heights. That's probably a better way to investigate correlations in terms of an interpreter of research that you are, I assume, if you're listening to this, and how you can better that for your performance. Really important to think how we can move beyond simply just correlations. So I'll leave it there for now um, because you can go down the rabbit hole discussion on that. And I don't really want to do that today because I think that'd be best served for a different topic where we can handle it in a more controlled fashion versus right now we're on the edge of a chaotic rant that will make little to no sense for listeners. So our second topic I wanted to bring up, what is the perfect primer? So a primer is an exercise that you might do before going to train. Before, sorry, not before I go to train. You might do in training before you go play. A primer might be something you do the night before, the day before, the day of, 20 minutes before. The point of a primer is to get your body ready to play at its highest level. And it really depends on the situation and the athlete. And this is why it's really important to understand the athlete when it comes to what exercise they want to do. Because the point of a primer is to make sure they feel good when they play. I've worked with an athlete who really likes to lift heavy weights before they play. 
I've worked with athletes who don't like to do that. Work with athletes who don't like to lift on game day and they'd rather lift the day before. It's all about what makes that person feel good. So a universal application of a primer doesn't make any sense. Just in the sense you probably wouldn't universally apply a dietary pregame meal to all athletes because not all athletes are going to handle each pregame meal the same. You want to eat something you feel good, you like, you enjoy, not something that's randomly thrown upon you. And so now with that in mind, if we assume all things equal, and we're going to assume we're doing this before the game, for me, one of the best primer considerations is that we're doing these exercises to get us really warm. And the minute we feel like we can really start to push the workout, that's when we stop. You basically think about it in terms of turning the engine on, warming the engine up on a cold day, and then stopping it. We're not going to push beyond that. It's almost as if we're just getting to a point, a sympathetic arousal, but then we're not going to induce any of the, any of the fatigue that typically occurs with a traditional workout. And so we're going to get the system revved up. We're going to get it going. We're going to get whatever sympathetic arousal has occurred. You're going to be activated in terms of engaged mentally. Your heart rate's going to be going. You might be slightly breaking a sweat. You probably have an increase in blood pressure. You're going to have some sort of hormone dumping of adrenals, but we're going to be done. We're not going to push past that in a crew fatigue. And so that's where the conversation with an athlete is really important is for them to understand the purpose of what we're trying to do, because I do not know when the athlete is most warmed up. You got to do what feels good for you. It's really important. Now, there are some theoretical aspects as to why a primer might help. Is it some sort of fluid dynamics in the muscle like we've contracted and we have now increased some distribution of blood flow to the area? Is it a temperature aspect where we have the muscles actually physically warmed up? Does something to do with the tendon and having that get hydrated in a certain way? I think I've, that's totally far out there, Max. Good job just making something up. But I do recall something about having done some sort of jumps and movements prior to might increase the hydration of a tendon. I don't know. Maybe that's made up. Take that last part with a grain of salt. But there could be something going on there um, in terms of to why that warm-up position, that just stopping right as you warm tends to work, at least for myself and others I've encountered tend to enjoy that as well, avoiding the fatigue. And I found that that primer can work maybe like up to six hours. So like you can do the workout and as long as it's like within the six hour window and you're not going to take a nap or anything like that, you probably will still have some residual effects. If anyone's trying to get what I'm trying to understand, what I'm trying to understand what I'm saying, Think of it like this. If you've ever gone to a workout, gone to the gym and shot hoops, gone to your first lift, and you haven't done anything yet that day, and you go and work out, you're almost always not as ready as you would be if you did a little bit of something in the morning and then went to that workout even six hours later. You typically feel more ready, you warm up quicker, and you're activated quicker. Um, and maybe that has to do with the priming I'm talking about. Again, it's a little bit more theoretical, I don't want to call it woo-woo, but maybe a little bit more out there um, in regards of like not hard science on it. Um, but that's my understanding of what's going on. So if it makes sense, my tips and recommendations be simple. Understand what window the athlete likes to work out in. If it's the day before, you probably have a little more freedom to develop some fatigue. If it's the day of, maybe just stopping before they're warmed up. I like to separate my primer and my of my workout or what I'm getting primed for with a meal. I like to have a break in between. I don't like it 30 minutes before a game. I like it three to four hours. Personally, I think that works better. Maybe that's just me. 
I think the reason behind that is because I don't want to initiate the warm up, then cool off for 30 minutes and then go get warmed up again. I might as well have just gotten warmed up the first time because now we've activated the system and now we haven't fueled the system, but we've activated it. And then we have a lag in between. Then we go warm up again. Then we take a break. Then we actually play the game versus maybe we just do it six hours before. Totally depends on your schedule, I suppose you could argue, but that's just my take. So I'll leave it there for the day. We'll save our bonus third topic for another day. I appreciate you all listening. As always, I hope you enjoyed. Take care. Thanks for tuning in and peace out.